turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. We're going to transition from celebrating the birth of two special little boys to looking at the imminent birth of two other special little boys. And we'll find out about that in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 856. So we started a series on Advent last week, building up to Christmas, taking time to build up to Christmas rather than just arrive startled at Christmas. And we're doing so in the book of Luke, particularly in three passages, through the eyes of two mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, looking at their perspective on the build up to the birth of Christ at Christmas. So verse 39 of chapter one, the scene we're arriving in is a pretty remarkable one because Mary has just discovered that she is pregnant, expecting the son of God, and her much older relative, Elizabeth, is also pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And so the two relatives are meeting together to celebrate this very, very unexpected pregnancy. So you can imagine that the um, excitement levels are pretty high. So Luke 1 and verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So that, is it not, is a scene of great joy, isn't it? There's a scene of great joy. And joy, according to the dictionary, is a lot more than just happiness. In fact, the definition I read said that joy was great happiness. It used other words like bliss and jubilation and delight to describe what joy is. And I think this passage has an awful lot to teach us about joy. Specifically, how to get it and how to hold on to it. So we're looking at this morning, how to get joy and also how to hold on to joy. Because I'm sure you'd agree there are a number of things that can take away our joy. Things that can rob us of joy. Things that can make it really hard to hold on to joy. Whether it is uh, bereavement or financial crisis um, or ill health or family strife or just simple frustration. There are a number of things that can make it hard to hold on to joy. And for Mary and Elizabeth, the two women in this passage, they also experienced a threat to their joy, if you like. And the unique threat to their joy was the danger of shame, the issue of shame. And both Mary and Elizabeth had both experienced genuine shame in their lives, specific to the first century Judean culture in which they lived. So Mary had experienced the cultural shame of becoming pregnant outside of marriage. Elizabeth had experienced the cultural shame of being childless for her whole marriage. I think all of us probably know that at some times in our life, maybe even now, shame is something that is uniquely able to rob us of joy. It's kind of shame's nature. It steals away joy. And shame can happen to us in all kinds of ways, whether it's shame because of what has happened to us, shame because of how people see us, Shame because of what's been spoken to us or shame because of what we've done. Psychologists would now largely agree that shame is a classic reason of why people are, sorry, psychologists would agree that the experience of shame 
very, very often will rob us of experiencing joy. So let's see how we can know joy and also how we can hold on to it. Three things I want to look at. Number one, the compelling nature of joy. Number two, the thieving nature of shame. And number three, how can shame be turned into joy? The compelling nature of joy, the thieving nature of shame, and how can shame, can shame, be turned into joy? And then at the end, we'll have time to to respond, to think, to reflect, to sing, to worship, to receive prayer. And uh, I'd really encourage you to be thinking now, how do you want to respond? It's my conviction this morning that God genuinely wants to restore and increase the joy with which we live this morning. So I've been praying about this week and seeing in this wonderful passage. I really do believe God is here this morning to help us to receive joy and perhaps even to replace shame with joy. So we're going to respond at the end in that light. Number one, the compelling nature of joy. The compelling nature of joy. Our most joyful experiences, it seems to me, stick with us because they are intense experiences. Don't you think? Joyful experiences stick in our memory because they're quite intense experiences. For example, I remember one person, in fact, Anna, asked me many years ago, she won't remember this, she asked me many years ago, what's one of your most joyful experiences? Or she asked, what's one of your most memorable experiences? And I replied pretty quickly, my most joyful experience was the 22nd of November, 2003. And she looked at me thinking, well, that's pretty remarkable. He knows the date. It must be quite a profound moment. Clearly, this guy's got some real weight to his experiences. Am I going to hear about some profound spiritual moment that's formed him into the man he is today? I said, yeah, my most joyful experience, 22nd of November, 2003. Final minute of the Rugby World Cup final of extra time. Johnny Wilkinson drops the winning goal. England win against Australia in Australia. Genuinely one of the most joyful moments in my life. And Anna looks at me, I think with like a combination of kind of bafflement and concern, I would say. <laughs> now, I still have in my office, I have a picture of that very moment. Johnny Wilkinson dropping that winning drop goal to help England win the World Cup. It's still there and it will always remain there. I also have a lot more pictures of my wife in my church office. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> And she, I would say, brings me far more joy than even Johnny Wilkinson's greatest sporting moments. In fact, having got married this year, our house seems to be festooned with wedding photos of the two of us. I can't go anywhere without seeing myself stare down at me. It's very disorientating. (laughs) And of course, ultimately, it's moments like weddings and births and so on that bring us perhaps the greatest joy. They make a far more intense impression on us. Those kinds of moments, weddings and birth, make a far more intense impression on us. As much as I still revel in Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal, it doesn't compare to moments of relational joy. Moments where we connect on a deep level with people that we love. Our connections with our family and our friends. I would contend that God has wired us to find our deepest joy in our relationships, in our giving and in our receiving of love. And that is what partly explains why Elizabeth and Mary are so joyful in this scene that we've just read. They're relatives. And as I said, at this point, Mary's discovered that she's pregnant. And Elizabeth's been pregnant for six months, about the same time as Ruth's been pregnant, apparently. Now, Dan and Anna, Cliff and Ruth, I'm guessing the excitement levels must have been pretty high when you found out you were expecting your babies. Especially if it was your first, I think, in, in both cases. 
And what about family and friends? Can you remember how you felt when the news of these two expected babies came? I think I'm right in saying that all four sets of parents were becoming grandparents for the first time. So what was the excitement levels like for you when you heard of this news? Of course, there are always unique and personal circumstances that make every pregnancy and birth incredibly joyful, aren't there? And for Elizabeth and Mary, that is no different. In fact, I would say especially for Elizabeth and Mary, there are some unique circumstances that mean this is a moment of incredible joy. First of all, we learn that Mary's child has been conceived supernaturally by the power of God, as opposed to naturally by the involvement of her husband's. It's worth saying that something as miraculous as the incarnation can give us pause for thoughts, and it should. How can that happen? I would just say, if God is real, if he is the designing force behind this whole cosmos, then therefore the natural material world is not all there is. And so supernatural things can surely take place. That's how we started our recent Ask London series, the very first talk, looking at the idea of the existence of God, if there is indeed one. You can catch up on it. It's the very first talk. The second reason why there is unique joy in this meeting is because Elizabeth is an older lady, and she's not been able to have children for her entire marriage up to now. It's a unique circumstance of joy. And thirdly, and finally, each mother has been told that their unborn sons would lead pretty remarkable lives, to say the least. Now, Simeon and Samson, we trust and pray, will lead remarkable lives in some ways, but I don't think, well, I know they won't compare to these two. Elizabeth's son, John, her husband, Zechariah, was told, would prepare the people of Israel to receive the Messiah the saviour of their nation that the Jewish scriptures and prophecies had predicted. And Mary's son, she was told, would be that Messiah, that saviour, the son of the most high God, it says in verse 33, the one who would establish the kingdom of God forever. These are remarkable promises placed over these two unborn little boys. And so put all of that together, can you see why this scene is one of exultant joy? Their, Their delight for each other, their gratitude for their own circumstances, I guess all the hopes that every mother has, all the hopes they have for their unborn children are being kind of shared and thrown around in this moment. So it's a moment of great joy, but I would suggest there's more joy or a deeper type of joy taking place as well. Because the unborn John, that's Elizabeth's son, he's in the presence, literally speaking, of the unborn Jesus, Mary's son. And we're told that the unborn John leaps in his mother's womb. Now, Anna and Ruth, I'm guessing you both experienced babies kicking in your womb, and so maybe this is something similar to that, but it's also on a whole other level as well. Because what's happening is, we're told, that this little unborn baby is, by the power of God, able to sense that Jesus, the one who he will later pave the way for, is in the room. And this little unborn baby is joyful about that. It's a remarkable thing. Furthermore, notice Elizabeth's reaction as well. You can see the unborn John's reaction. What about Elizabeth's reaction? Really interesting. She says in verse 43, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So you have the unborn baby experiencing joy somehow at being in the presence of the unborn Christ. But you also have Elizabeth experiencing great joy. She's amazed. She's amazed that she gets to be in the presence of Jesus. It seems like to me that for her, 
and her unborn child, her ultimate joy, even more than her own unexpected pregnancy, is to be in the presence of God. It's to be part of the story of the Son of God coming into the world. Even more than her own changed circumstances, she seems to be more so celebrating God's here, more even than her own circumstances. Being in the presence of Jesus seems to mean even more to her than these remarkable changes in her own circumstances. So, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us this Christmas? I think it teaches us that as joyful as our circumstances might be at Christmas, and they may not be, and I'll come to that, but as joyful as gathering with family can be, can be, as joyful as having time off from work to rest is, as joyful as great parties and great presents are, or even of learning of new life in the womb, even these things, this passage suggests that true and lasting and ultimate joy, the joy we're trying to get hold of, is found in the presence of Jesus. Certainly that's Elizabeth's experience. So my question is, how can you cultivate that kind of joy this Christmas? So it might be like Christy was saying, you come to our carol service in a couple of weeks' time. That might be your opportunity to make space for the presence of Christ at Christmas. And we'd love you to join us. For many of us, we think, who are we going to invite to that carol service to be able to put the presence of Christ in Christmas for a moment? Or thinking differently, what about if work at the moment is a bit of a flurry of deadlines and pressure in the lead up to Christmas, what would it mean for you to take time to prioritize the presence of Jesus this Christmas? What would it mean to skip a meal at work and instead find a a place to pray, maybe to read the rest of Luke's account of the Nativity story? As believers, how are we being intentional at Christmas How are we being intentional about making space for the presence of Christ at Christmas? For Elizabeth, it seemed to be everything, even more than her joyful circumstances. How are we being intentional to make space for the presence of Christ at Christmas? I mentioned earlier that it can be difficult to hold on to joy. That's what we're asking ourselves this morning. Not not just how to get it, but how to hold on to it. And I said that many things can steal it away not least shame, perhaps. That was the unique thing that was threatening Mary and Elizabeth's joy. All of us, I think, can experience shame and the unique way that shame has of robbing us of joy. So um, my wife and I recently, uh, last weekend, in fact, we took what turned out to be the highly controversial step of purchasing a Christmas tree in the month of November and putting it in our living room. Turned into a very controversial step. Now, it's fair to say that prior to being married, I never fully immersed myself in the Christmas festivities. That would be an understatement. So I thought this event of purchasing and putting a tree up in November was worthy of a, of a Facebook post. So I duly posted this little event on Facebook. And to my amazement, a flurry of comments appeared. Never before has a Facebook post of mine caused such divided opinion about whether rights and wrongs of a Christmas tree in November. It was extraordinary. Anyway. The next day, someone said to me, very, very uh, innocently and, and jovially, someone said to me, um, I noticed on your Facebook post, I noticed that you wrote Xmas tree in November, not Christmas tree in November. You wrote Xmas tree in November. And we sort of had a bit of a laugh about it, and it was all, you know, in, in very sort of jovial banter stuff. But afterwards, I kind of thought for a moment. I kind of thought, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a church pastor. If I should be doing anything at Christmas, it's in probably ensuring that Christ is in Christmas. That's kind of what I probably should be doing. 
Somebody um, once said about, about the word Christian, someone once said, if you take Christ out of Christian, you are left with the letters I-A-N, and Ian doesn't help anyone. <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm, if I'm a church pastor, I should, I should not be taking Christ out of Christian or Christmas. I'm supposed to be helping people put the, reflect on the joy of having Christ in Christmas. And you know what happened in that little moment? Just a little bit of shame just quietly crept in. Just a little bit. Not lots, not cripplingly so. Just a little bit of shame. And shame is what shame does. It steals your joy. It takes your joy. The joy of sharing that little moment of us preparing for our first married Christmas together, just gone for a moment because of shame. And it's only a small example, and I didn't lose lots of sleep over it, but it's just an example of what shame does. It's the nature of shame. It thieves joy. It takes it away from us. And if anyone knew about shame, it was Elizabeth. We know that she'd been childless for her whole marriage to Zechariah, right into old age. Now she would have endured incredible heartache, one can only imagine, over that issue of enduring childlessness. Now, that issue, of course, is by no means unique to her or to her culture. The pain that couples experience when they find they are uh, unable to conceive is as relevant today as it's ever been. Only last month, the BBC reported that one in seven couples find it uh, very hard to conceive. And it's not something we find easy to talk about because obviously it's deeply personal and, and deeply painful. But just as a Kind of an aside, it's my hope that a church that wants to prize authenticity will be able to find a way to have safe and honest conversations like these. And that sadness or even shame would never steal away authenticity and the joy that comes from being part of a community like that. It's my desire that we would be a church like the one, like the, one the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 12, when he describes a church as a community of believers who rejoice with those who rejoice which we do this morning, and who also is able to weep with those that weep. But though the, the challenge that Elizabeth faced was not unique, I think we do need to understand the culture in which she lived to understand the shame that she had to endure. That was very unique and particular to her culture. In first century Judea, a wife like Elizabeth would have been entirely defined by her ability to bear children, completely. To be childless would have brought great shame on her and her husband, especially because he was a temple priest. Elizabeth would not have been pitied. She'd have been mocked for her situation for decades. And I'm only speculating, but I'm guessing she would have become accustomed to knowing glances and to muttered comments, those kinds of comments that are meant to be overheard. She'd have become accustomed to comments like, who will continue the family line? Or comments like, poor Zechariah, a priest, a man of God, and his wife has failed to bear him a son. What dishonor she's brought upon them. Or comments like, perhaps God is punishing her for some sin that we don't know about. Maybe she's not as godly as we think after all. She would have become used to those kinds of thoughts and comments for decades. Imagine what that was like. One, uh, one commentator puts it like this. In the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish world, a woman gained her stature on the basis of her children. That was it. A woman's greatness was tied to the greatness of the children she bore. To bear no children was to have zero stature, zero status. 
Now, of course, the story ends wonderfully with Elizabeth being able to give birth to an extraordinary baby, an extraordinary man, not just any baby, not just any man. Jesus later on describes her grown-up son, John, as the greatest human that ever lived. So the story, in that sense, ends wonderfully. So is that what this teaches us? Is that what we learn? That the way to have joy and to hold on to joy is for God to change our shameful circumstances into joyful ones. Is that the way that we get and hold on to joy? Well, partly, yes, because God absolutely does and can do those kinds of things. Many of us in this church have known of God intervening significantly into circumstances like uh, financial strife or ill health or relational breakdown. And we've seen him reverse circumstances and bring great joy about as a result. I'm looking at faces who I know can testify along those lines. But what about when that doesn't happen or isn't happening? What then? How do, you, how do you get joy or hold on to joy then? And this is where I think Elizabeth teaches us something really more profound about joy. In the earlier part of chapter one, I didn't read it, in verse six, it says this, Luke says this in verse six of chapter one. He says, and they, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now there's a theologian called N.T. Wright and he explains this text and he says really that the sense of the text is like this. It's as though the text is saying this. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's sight, observant Jews, keeping the law as a sign of grateful devotion to God. That's what the text is getting at. Grateful devotion to God. My point is it seems that despite their sadness and the sense of shame that they carried, it seems that Elizabeth and Zechariah always continued to honor God, to seek to draw close to him through the system that they knew, to worship him, and to prioritize their status, as it were, as children of God. It seems that they had a primary joy in their lives, one that was even greater than the joy that a much-wanted child could bring. If that's true, that's quite a claim. That's quite a type of joy, if that's true. And the reason why I think it is true is because of the passages that we've been reading, verse 39 to 45. Because that tells us that, because Elizabeth is pregnant by then, in our passage, verse 39 to 45. And now that she is pregnant, it's fascinating to me that when she realizes that she's in the presence of the mother of the Son of God, a mother and an unborn child greater than her and her unborn child, I'm interested by her reaction by being in the presence of one who's greater than her and a baby who will be greater than hers. Remember how long she's waited for a child. Is there any bitterness in her reaction? Any sense of comparison with my son and her son? Or any sense of, hang on a minute, I've waited decades to be a mother and my teenage relative gets pregnant like that. Doesn't seem to be anything of that in the text. She just celebrates She's just joyful. Why? I would suggest to you it's because her ultimate joy has always been in God. And so when she gets to this moment of finding herself in the presence of God, the unborn Jesus, realizing that God is accomplishing his purposes through someone else as well as her, she just celebrates more. She's used to her primary joy being in God. And so this moment exposes that fact to be true. And she just celebrates God again. 
You see, very often it's my experience, personal experience, that our reaction to the unexpected moments of life can tell us an awful lot about what we most deeply value and put our hope for joy in. It seems... You see, if Elizabeth, if, if Elizabeth's deepest source of joy had always been having a child, one that would uh, be great and would bring her honor and remove her shame, if that had been her deepest source of joy, I'm not sure she would necessarily have reacted the way that she does. It seems like Elizabeth had found in God a deep source of joy that allowed her to navigate both the pain of circumstances and the joy of circumstances. Do you see? She seems to have found something that helped her navigate both. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of joy? That means that you can navigate, you're not overly inflated by the great things and you're not overly deflated by the painful things. Do you have that? Or do the circumstances of life kind of throw you about? Are you blown about by every shift and change? You see, the Bible is really honest. It's really honest. It, it, uh, it knows that human beings experience a depth of emotions, and we're supposed to, ranging from the deepest of grief through to the most exuberant of bliss. But the Bible also suggests that there is a way of existing whereby we are not uh, blown about, whereby we are anchored and able to know deep peace and joy through both the good and the bad. Even if the bad is shame and the threat that it brings. The Bible says there's a way of being able to cope with that. There's a way of being able to hold on to your joy, even if great things want to take their priority, and even if the worst of things like shame want to steal it. I want to know that. I don't feel I've got there yet. I don't feel like I have such a deep Elizabeth-like sense of joy in God that I can truly navigate the worst of things and the best of things and remain anchored to that one thing. I want to know that. I definitely want to know that when shame lurks, how do I hold on to joy then? How is it possible to hold on to joy even in the face of something like shame? Point three. Well, the clue is in the little unborn baby that Mary was carrying. Just as we celebrate the birth of babies in our church today, at Christmas we celebrate the birth of the greatest baby ever born. In the famous words of the angel to the shepherds that are probably all here at carol carol services, the baby who will bring great joy to all the people. The baby that was to grow up and accomplish all that needed to be accomplished for us to be able to experience the joy of restored and intimate relationship with God. Not to live in shame, the shame of things spoken over us or the shame of things done to us or the shame of how we treat other people, but to live in joy, joy that is secure and joy that is everlasting. That's what Christmas is about in that sense. why this little baby Jesus came, to bring joy to all people. And of course, for all of that to be accomplished, this baby Jesus became a 33-year-old man, Jesus, who died on the cross. And I'm fascinated by what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus' death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer says this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think that's a remarkable verse. It's saying, such was the joy 
that Jesus experienced at the joy that he knew he was winning for us, that he was prepared to go through the shame of the crucifixion. Do you see? Jesus experienced great joy at winning us and great joy at the joy that he was winning for us. And that motivated him to experience his own shame. My goodness, he experienced shame for himself, naked, abandoned, humiliated, and in agony. He experienced the deepest of shame for himself and he left it behind. A beaten, despised force, as the writer of Hebrews says. Shame couldn't hold him. He left it behind, as it were, nailed to the cross. Death couldn't hold him. Such was Jesus' mission to restore to us the joyful relationship with God for which we were made, that he was prepared to go through the depths of shame to nail that shame to the cross, to come out the other side and to award us joy. There's um, an American church leader called John Piper, some of you will know, and he uh, helps us understand this passage in Hebrews. And especially this phrase that Jesus despised shame, which is a quite a strong phrase. And Piper says that when the writer says Jesus despised shame, it's as though Jesus was speaking words like this. So Piper says, you've got to imagine Jesus saying these words when he was despising shame on the cross. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you, shame. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy joy. That is my power. Not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. Jesus both endured and defeated shame, our shame, so that we could know deep joy. In some ways, that's the gospel. He endured our shame so that we could know not just a neutral, non-shame status, but a joyful status in the arms of a loving God. A joy, a deep joy that is not dependent on circumstances that change, but on the accomplishments of Christ that never change. A joy that cannot be stolen from us by shame, though shame will try. And a joy that is deep and lasting and satisfying. You see, I would contend that all the joy that we experience Uh, The joy of new life coming to families. The joy of cultivating and enjoying beauty and art and music. The joy of overcoming challenges and obstacles. The joy of forming deep relationships of self-giving love. I would contend that all of those experiences of joy are there as indicators, as signposts. They're there to point us towards the deepest form of joy that happens and takes place in the arms of a loving Father God who made all those joyful experiences in order to point us towards him. So, as the band come and join me and as we sing and worship and perhaps reflect and receive prayer. I want us to think about responding. That's what I said at the beginning. I really believe God's been speaking. That's what he does through his Bible, through his words. And if he has been speaking, it makes sense to respond to him. There's a prayer team to my left who'd love to pray with you for anything at all. As soon as we start singing, you can receive prayer for anything at all. You're facing challenges this week. Maybe you're sick. We'd love to pray for you to be healed. Or you just want to encounter more of God. You want to encounter more of the joy of God. Come and receive prayer. Just as a specific comment on something I've said, I'm aware that by touching on the issues of 
difficulties that the couples have conceiving. I'm aware that I was touching on something pretty personal and pretty raw. Listen, if, if that is the case for you, if that's something you're in or involved in, just please know that Caroline and myself or Paul and Blinda, we'd so love to talk with you or pray with you. Not because we have all the answers, but because we love you. For some others of us, if, you, if you're living with a sense of shame this morning, I want to tell you that the gospel message is this. You are both fully known and fully loved. Jesus is aware of everything. The things done to you, the things done by you. And he loves you. Jesus has taken your shame and he offers you joy instead. He hasn't just taken it. The Bible says he despised it. He nailed it to the cross. Don't let shame, (laughs) don't let shame do what it does and steal joy. It's what shame does. Don't live with that continuing sense of I can't quite show this part of myself. That is shame's nature. It thieves the joy of being open and authentic and becoming the person that God's made you to be. Please don't leave leave here with shame still able to steal the joy that Jesus went to such depths and extents to win for you. Come, talk, pray it through with the team here or the person you gave came with. And finally, maybe you're here as a Christian and you would say, kind of ticking along ticking along as a Christian you don't, you don't experience great shame it's, I'm kind of neutral I know I'm forgiven so on and so forth I'm not carrying any great shame but I'm, I'm kind of neutral I'm, I'm ticking along listen Jesus did not do what he did for neutral <laughs> Jesus did not uh, go through what he went through and accomplish what he accomplished to award us a neutral existence. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross, despising shame, to lead us into the joyful relationship with Father God that we were made for. Please, Christians, don't be content with neutral. It doesn't say, Jesus didn't say, for neutral life, where you're only forgiven, I did what I did. Christian life is not just to be brought from minus to zero and be forgiven. It's to be brought into abundant life, full life, into the positive. Jesus did not do what he did for a neutral experience. He did what he did to give us abundant life, full life, joyful life, the kind of joy that can endure in the worst of circumstances and still the best joy in the best of circumstances. That joy, I believe, to the bottom of my boots is available to you this morning. I really believe God is here and actively able to transfer joy into your life. He can do both those things. He can remove shame and bring you joy. Why can he do it? Because Jesus did it and accomplished it and despised shame. He can remove shame and give you joy. He's actively able to do that this morning by the power of his spirit. Please don't leave here this morning with shame robbing your joy and neutral. Okay, let's stand. I'm going to pray. As soon as we begin singing, you can, you're so welcome to come and receive prayer. The team would love to pray with you. They'll be stood out in this uh, space here welcoming you. And of course, you can reflect and respond and sing 
as you wish. It might be that you want to come and share things that are going to help us. And Becca will be here with the microphone to do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that we're celebrating the most critical moment in humanity when God decided to intervene and step in to our situation. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came. We thank you so much that you went all the way through your mission to the cross, despising shame, because you were so joyful about bringing us into the arms of God to know abundant life. And I pray for all of us that we would walk out this space this morning knowing genuine joy. I pray for any who are experiencing shame, come God and do what only you can do. Don't just reverse it into a neutral thing. Reverse it and bring joy. 